Hello and welcome to the One Football Women's Podcast. It is the first One Football Women's Podcast of 2022, and we do have some transfer news. I am your new host, and I am delighted to welcome Alex Ibafeta and Jesse Parker Humphreys today to chat all things WSL, Conti Cup, FIFA the Best, and maybe a little bit more. Alex, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Before we get into the actual football, I do want to talk about FIFA's The Best Awards. To begin with, Alexia Petras obviously won Best Player. Can we all agree on that very quickly and get that out of the way? I think so. I think Alex would kill me if I if I disagreed. She would appear <laughs> in my living room right now and yeah, bash probably. me over the head. <laughs> Right, okay. I do so, agree, to clarify. <laughs> so, so for the safety of all of us, we're just going to agree and move on very quickly to the best 11, which I don't think there's so much agreement with. Especially seeing as Alexia Petras didn't make the best 11. Explain that one. What was the one thing about the awards or about the 11, Jesse, that you found the most outrageous? most outrageous um i thought it was quite outrageous that akb and katrenberger didn't win best goalie um but that is almost certainly my own chelsea bias this is what i find hard about these kind of awards anyway because it's so difficult to kind of take your own personal biases out of it i think and i do Mm. understand kind of like the like outrage around the best 11 the pateas thing is like bizarre as well but ultimately i think players are just going to vote for these things based off the football they watch, the football they see. Um, the Carly Lloyd thing, for example, I think that's heavily influenced by her retirement, which, again, I kind of get. It's another problem with these awards is the classic thing is, like, the time span. Like, how do do people get drawn into this, like, overview of someone's career um, rather than what's actually happened in the past year? I mean, you know, I'm incredibly ambivalent about Carly Lloyd generally but I can understand that some people think she's a fantastic player or at least was a fantastic player um but yeah the Alex Morgan one is probably the most bizarre one I think in that 11 because that I just genuinely don't get because I I feel like she did literally nothing and has done basically nothing since the 29 World Cup so I don't really get where that one's coming from but you know I think you do see elements of this in in the men's game as well when these Players are always going to use heuristics to judge all this stuff, right? Who has time to, like, watch as many games as, like, journalists or just fans do anyway when you have to train non-stop and then play football all the time? Well, Alex, quickly, um, before... Because that sort of ties into my next question, but was there something in particular that wound you up the most? I think it was Carly Lloyd. (laughs) This is is one thing that Jesse and I agree with the most. Um, (laughs) When you look at... I mean, I'm not... a big fan of Carly Lloyd you know she has done a lot of things in football but in the past year other than retired she hasn't done anything you know for club or for country necessarily the U.S. hasn't really won anything or done anything incredible um the same with Alex Morgan you know Jesse mentioned she hasn't done anything for the past year um and then when you look at the rest of it I mean you can pick it apart really you know Marta again you know she is a legend um but is she still worthy of having in the world's best 11 probably not um and you just look at other like little details like i the way i approached this 
11 was kind of to balance club and country, which is the reason why I would have picked Christian Led over Anne Katrin Berger because simply because of, of the lack of Germany time that Anne Katrin Berger has. Um, but then you look at, you know, a player like Estefania Banini, who plays for Levante, um, played for Levante, and now she's at Atletico Madrid. You know, yes, Levante had a good season, but Estefania Banini hasn't played for her national team since the 2019 World Cup. So it's just, it's little details that just would have made a big difference if people would be able to, and I think that's that's a big, that's a crucial point, is to be able to actually keep up with women's football. So it's just, it's a lot of little details that just added up to a disastrous 11. <laughs> so that was my next question, because we do, and you both touched on it, we see this in the men's game as well, where it becomes a little bit of a popularity or fame contest more than who was the best 11 or who deserves a place in the best 11 for their performances in the past 12 months. How much do you think it's due to the inaccessibility of the women's game? I think it's definitely obviously an issue, um, but I think there are, I think it's quite an easy thing to point to. And, you know, because we see similar stuff in men's football, I don't think it's, the entire answer because you know lots of footballers also don't necessarily like watching that much football I mean maybe they shouldn't then be getting votes but you know obviously Steph Horton famously said that she basically hated watching women's football because she thought it was rubbish I might be paraphrasing slightly there but that was definitely (laughs) the implication in what she said um you know Ben White did an interview recently where he said he just has never bothered to watch football. Um, it's like never really interested him in that sense. And, you know, I think that's important to appreciate that players are going to have different relationships to the people they vote for than we do as fans, journalists, analysts, whatever that experience is. Um, that being said, it obviously doesn't help if you can't watch everything at the touch of the button. But I think something that's interesting about the women's game that maybe maybe doesn't exist so much in the men's game is the kind of geographical global spread of it in terms of um, the NWSL and America, but also thinking about like South American women's football and then that up against European football. Whereas lots of these men's awards, we tend to they tend to almost be focused on players who at least play their club football in Europe, even if they obviously play internationally differently, which suddenly means everything's in the same time zone for you to watch. But the idea that, you know, WSL players are regularly going to be staying up till midnight to watch NWSL football is just like totally unrealistic. So I think that geographical element maybe skews the women's side of these competitions even more. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really fair point. And then I would ask, should we, if we're going to continue with these awards, which I mean, personally, I don't have that much interest in anyway, but if we are going to continue, which obviously we are, should the votes be taken away from the players and handed to journalists or fans? That's that's an interesting one, because Jesse touched on it there. You know, the relationship that the players have to football and other players is completely different than what we have uh, to the players and clubs and, and matches. Um, I think when, for example, there's a, there's a lot of awards that happen in between like the leagues that are voted by the players and you whenever a player wins that it means that much more to them um because it's voted by fellow players you know they go through the same stuff um they play the same game so the appreciation between players i think it's a bit higher than what we have for them ourselves because just because we don't go through the same stuff if that makes sense um 
So I don't think it should be stripped of them because it does have that element of respect that isn't the same coming from a journalist or analysis or, or anybody else. So I don't think, yeah, I don't think that should be stripped, but it's just, it's a hard one because obviously when when you have players voting for other players, you, you get this. Um, so I think one of maybe the, the solutions would be just to have a bit more of a strict protocol, if that makes sense. Maybe, you know, have a, a short list of, say, 50, 100 players to pick from and then they can choose from that rather than mm-hmm. picking Carly Lloyd out of a hat. Um, I think that could be a decent solution, but I don't think they should be stripped of, of the opportunity to vote because I think it does mean just that much more um, to vote between players. So now that that's out of the way, um, I'd like to actually talk about football and football that goes on on the pitch and <laughs> not on stages that are put up by FIFA's money. Um, <laughs> we saw the Conti Cup last night, the quarterfinals, and Arsenal's crisis, if we can call it that, deepened or went on. Credit, obviously, to Manchester United, who have been on a really, really excellent run of late. But it's now five defeats in six games for Arsenal. They've scored five goals in that time. Four of those came against Leicester, and the fifth was an own goal. Alex, is this bad luck? Is this something that will turn around? Or are there serious problems for Jonas Eidervall now? It's hard to evaluate it at the moment, I think. Um, I mean, after, after the match last night, which I wasn't too happy with, I was expecting a nice evening of football and Arsenal win, and obviously that went downhill. Um, but after the match in the post-match press conference, Jonas actually wasn't entirely too critical of the match. He said it was a step in the right direction. Um, and what he meant from that was that he liked the pressing and playing out the back that happened. Um, and obviously he did mention that Arsenal just wouldn't wasn't able to, to kind of just finish the chances that they were actually creating and the actual small amount of times that they actually created something dangerous but it's it's hard because obviously Jonas and Arsenal started the league super super well um, and it kind of looked like it was going uphill from there obviously top of the league isn't something that you would have expected from Arsenal say last season but now it's just maybe it is off the pitch stuff maybe it's internal stuff I mean against Birmingham Jonas mentioned that he didn't get the game plan across effectively and is it a matter of him kind of changing up the game plan and the players just not kind of hooking up to it as as well as he thought he would be or is it just the players just not really at their best moment when you look at Arsenal and they came back from the summer and they started the season obviously that big win over Chelsea these players came in with a fresh mind and they they look like players that were determined to win it all that they were determined to prove everyone wrong to to actually get something done on the pitch that they haven't been able to do in the last two years. Um, But when you look at the players now that have returned from Christmas break, it's the complete opposite. You know, these players don't really look like, and it's a bit of a stretch, and obviously I don't mean this quite literally, but they just look like they don't want to be playing right now. Um, And it's not the best thing when you combine that with potentially a new game plan from Jonas with players that don't really want to do it. So it's, you know, it's, it's Arsenal, you know, the players aren't... Um, it's it's a good squad no matter what, but I just don't know if it's maybe just a lack of motivation sometimes. And this Man United loss was, I think, hit quite hard considering what happened um, against Birmingham. I think this was going to be 
we talked, Jesse and I talked about it, how this was going to be kind of make it or break it for Arsenal ahead of the weekend, obviously against Man City. Um, and their confidence now is just low, low, low. So coming into the weekend is just going to be that much harder now. Yeah. I think the only thing that that is maybe Arsenal take away from this and feel good about is how much better I thought they looked when Leah Williamson did come on. And yes. I think it would be ridiculous to pin everything on her missing. But seeing how quickly Arsenal's kind of progression up the pitch changed and their attacking play changed when she was there made it like incredibly apparent how much of a difference that was making. I don't know whether that can, you know, make up for, for all of the the rest of the stuff that seems to be going on. And I think, you know, I don't know how much better Arsenal would have done in some of those bigger losses, you know, against Barcelona and, and the FA Cup final if she'd been playing. But I definitely think that is at least some one positive that, that they can take away from last night's match. That's one positive. Leah Williamson's obviously a massive player for the club, has been for years, has now signed her new contract to continue being a massive player for the club and at both ends of the pitch as well. I think you've seen that, that the ability to control the game and from the back and build up and just put different pressure points on the opposition has completely not been there without her. Do you think, Jesse? without the the sort of rose-tinted glasses that Alex and I watch Arsenal with, do you think (laughs) the new signings will make much of a difference? Do you think there's maybe a little bit of hesitation to to think that just because Arsenal had so many new players in the summer already, now three new faces so far in this transfer window, Rafaela, Laura, Wienreuter and Stina Blackstenius, do you think there's going to be a bedding in period or is this the sort of injection that the team needs at the moment to improve? Yeah, this was the kind of weird thing last night is I didn't really understand why Idaval brought Blackstinius and Wienreuter on for kind of this last like 15-20 minutes with the game in the balance. It just seemed like the worst moment to bring your new signings in and kind of expect them to really affect and change the game. Um I think Wienreuter will be a really good addition. I think Arsenal have really lacked um, having a real force down the right-hand side. And I think especially now, you know, Steph Catley is away. So kind of that impacts every everyone on the pitch as Katie McCabe kind of shifts back into the left-back position and, and you can't play her on one side and Mead on the other. Um, I still think it was really bizarre that they let Evans go this summer. I mean, seeing her kind of just come on for the last 15 minutes against Chelsea last night, it it was just like, whilst watching Arsenal struggle, it seemed really strange that that they, did, they didn't bother to keep her and, and they now kind of have this problem because Nikita Paris has basically been a flop. And I don't think that was necessarily something that we couldn't see coming. I definitely wanted her to do better than she has, but I think it's fairly safe to say it hasn't worked out. Um, I think Tobin Heath is similar. I think her injury issues have just kind of become too much for her to realistically put together uh, large amounts of game time. We saw it at United and we're now seeing at Arsenal too. Um, Blackstenius, I think, is the most interesting of the signings just because how this works with Miedemar is very fascinating from an outside perspective. Again, yeah, taking off your star player uh, when you really need a win to bring on someone who's never played English football before um, felt like quite a statement from Jonas, I thought. Uh, I think Blackstinius has the 
capacity to do really well in the WSL, but I don't see how that doesn't come as a result of sacrificing Miedemar's game time. And that feels like something that would accelerate her out the door. I mean, I don't know if maybe they already know it's decided. And so Idavar's kind of cutting his losses on that one. Um, But it just feels like you've got two similar players who you're really going to have to try and try and balance. And I just think Miedemar is someone who, as much as she's a fantastic player, also really thrives off like the confidence of the team around her and her manager. And I just think at the moment at Arsenal, that really feels like it's missing. And that's why I think the Blackstenius thing is a bit of a strange one because as much as it, you know, they had to go in for her in January because otherwise someone else would have signed her. It just feels like maybe it's stirring the pot more than it needed to at the club. And especially in this situation right now, as you say, um, I think Alex, you said Manchester City up this weekend. Things do not get any easier. City beat Bristol City last night after a really early scare. It's six wins in a row, 25 goals in that time. And it just goes to show maybe green shoots for Arsenal there, how quickly a crisis can turn into something that looks quite laughable a few weeks down the road. Have either of you got an explanation for how City have turned things around so quickly and an explanation that isn't just to do with they had a bunch of injuries and that's clearing up a little bit? If it's not about the injuries, then I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me the explanation is they've played easy games and they've won easy games. I think this Arsenal game will be the, the first time we kind of really see whether they have changed anything or cleared anything up um because really they've just beaten the teams that that you would expect them to beat based on the quality of the players you put out there i feel like you know when you're looking at those kind of sides you you should just be able to put those players on the pitch and not even tell them anything and they normally can figure out what to score uh how to score i think the surprise i guess at the beginning of the season but now seeing how those those team you know when they lost to tottenham and west ham seeing how Tottenham and West Ham have shown themselves to be incredibly well-organised teams, that those losses almost make a lot more sense, right? But then against badly organised teams, they'll be fine. I think what will be interesting is just just see how well-organised Arsenal end up being at the weekend because recently they haven't looked particularly uh, organised. So I feel like that's the bigger question than whether Man City can actually affect change. So, Jesse, on to Chelsea who were back to winning ways last night and also booked their place in the semi-finals after that nightmare end to 2021. But they had to work hard for it against West Ham, didn't they? Yeah, it was a it was a struggle. Um, the first half was particularly dire and I was at Brighton-Chelsea men's game the night before and I just felt like it's amazing sometimes when you're watching your team across both sides and but you're just like it's that the football is is the same like it's so bad the passing the touching like all of it's gone uh, and I was joking with someone on Twitter that it's like the the men play too much the women play too little but the outcome's kind of the same either way uh, but fortunately in the second half we did um we did pick it up a bit more I think ultimately the quality of players on the pitch you know we, we were starting harder and Kirby uh, alongside Neil Charles as, as a front three was was just always going to be too much for West Ham probably um, it was it was interesting we played a 4-3-3 and I'm not sure the midfield really worked it was Sophie Ingle, Aaron Cuthbert and Jesse Fleming but it didn't always feel like those 
players, especially Cuthbert and Fleming, knew exactly where they needed to be. And West Ham have a really strong midfield. And that was what was kind of allowing them to, to overrun us. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if Hayes is kind of planning on sticking with that. Ericsson's out with an injury. We're not really clear how long she's going to be out for. Um, I assume it's the thing she picked up in the Wolfsburg game. So she's been out for over a month with it. Um, so I don't know whether it's a case of playing the back four whilst Ericsson's out or if it's a, a long-term switch. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. I think it's really good for the sides to have picked up this win against a West Ham team who are tough to play against and then get Brighton at the weekend. Um, Brighton are kind of Chelsea's bogey team, but they look really bad at the moment. So I'm hoping again, that's just going to be an opportunity to kind of get everyone time in their legs and get, get some confidence back because you know, the, the wobble at Chelsea is, has been as bad as the wobble at Arsenal really. I was about to say, well, you know, with an FA Cup added in, but I guess that that in exchange for Champions League elimination. Uh, I was about to say Brighton may be the perfect opponent for Chelsea this weekend, given how they've fallen off over, well, the end of last year and the start of this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jesse likes when I talk about Chelsea in a good manner. Um, but yeah, I think... We all know what Brighton can do in the league um, under Hope Powell, especially, you know, we keep mentioning Hope Powell um, on our podcast. Jesse and I just say Hope Powell and Hope Powell we trust all the time. Um, so you do know what Brighton is capable of, but the way they've started the season and the ter- the determination that Chelsea have to start the year off well, I think it's just completely contrasting. And I don't see Brighton kind of getting... They could run the game close, but I just see Chelsea having that next level um, above them and kind of being able to finish off. Um, and especially the way that Arsenal have been dropping points. Um, I would imagine that Emma Hayes is drilling that into the Chelsea player's head um, for extra motivation. So, yeah, it's... it's Look, as an Arsenal fan, it's a bit annoying to see Chelsea um, back to kind of a comfortable level um, where they are able to finish off the games like they did last night against West Ham. Um, and it's, you know, this this game in February between Arsenal and Chelsea is going to be the game of the season, probably. Uh, from one or two London clubs to another, and our fourth semi-finalists are Tottenham, who beat a Liverpool team that is blowing away the championship this season. Just quickly on Spurs first. Three of their 11 WSL games have ended with three goals and the other eight have all ended with fewer. The result against Liverpool obviously was 1-0 last night. Spurs are so defensively solid. Jesse, you touched on that. But how much do you think a lack of a regular goal scorer is is holding them back or is going to hold them back for the rest of the season? Now they've got themselves, especially in this position, to challenge for a Champions League spot. Yeah, you've got to think their kind of luck's going to change or or the you know kind of you kind of saw it this weekend I guess with West Ham getting that late late equaliser that's what you open yourself up to if you can't put games to bed when when you have well you know in that game numerical advantage as as well as kind of the footballing superiority which which they did show for for large portions of it it's a strange one because Spurs feel like they've been jam-packed with young exciting attackers uh, who have just never managed to make the step up. You've got Rosella Ayan, Jess Naz, Rihanna Dean was obviously there till last season and, and she's gone to Liverpool. Um, but it feels like none of them can really 
compete and finish in the way that that Spurs need them to if they are going to kind of carry on moving up the table. Rachel Williams is obviously having this kind of incredible career resurgence, but I don't feel like she can necessarily... um, keep on going with the number of minutes she's playing you know Spurs rested her for the first half of that that West Ham game I think for that reason uh so but it's tricky you know I think it's hard for well it's funny right I I say I think it's hard for clubs of that stature of Spurs' stature in the women's game to attract really top centre forwards like would a player like Beth England okay leaving aside the the kind of London rivalry I don't know whether she'd care about that or not like, would she want to move to Spurs? It's quite hard to to imagine that. But then, of course, they did manage to get Alex Morgan for six months. So, you know, there's there's obviously, you know, some levers they can pull somewhere, whether whether it's financial or, or whatnot, to get those those kind of players in. But I do think they really need to look for someone who's kind of got that proven goal-scoring ability, particularly in the WSL. Because, again, I think we see lots of teams try and bring in... Uh, international players who who don't necessarily cut it in in the league in the same way but ultimately there's not loads of players out there like that and you know West Ham also have a similar problem I'd say Brighton have that problem too Um, in fact you know I think Reading have done really well to get Natasha Dowie because she has played in the WSL before she has loads of experience and she's scoring a lot of goals I think she's already equaled their top scorer from last from last season in in the first half of the season and it's amazing how much of a difference that suddenly makes to your team because everyone feels more confident um so yeah it, it's a tricky one but I don't think Spurs will end up in the Champions League positions and I think it probably is because they don't have a really good goal scorer yeah I mean you mentioned Rachel Williams there obviously she scored the goal last night I had a look this morning. She is Tottenham's top goal scorer, four goals in the WSL this season. She hadn't scored in the WSL for three seasons before this one. <laughs> one of them she basically missed because of injury, so that doesn't count. But still, two entire seasons before this season without scoring a goal. If they're relying on her continuing this run, then that um, probably speaks volumes about the situation. I wanted to ask about Liverpool as well and Liverpool in the context of what we've seen the last couple of weekends in the WSL where Birmingham have beaten Arsenal, Leicester have beaten... um, Shit, brain's gone. Who did Leicester beat at the weekend? Brighton. (laughs) Yep, sorry. I wanted to ask about Liverpool as well in the context of what we've seen in the WSL the last few weeks. We've had so many seasons where one team or maybe two teams are at the bottom of the league and the head-to-head will decide that. We've now seen uh, Birmingham beat Arsenal a couple of weeks ago. We've seen Leicester beat Brighton this weekend. And now we've seen Liverpool compete with Tottenham as the championship leaders. What does this say about the, the strength of women's football and the closing of the gap between the Women's Super League and the championship? Yeah, I think it's it's really good to see, obviously. Um, when you look at Leicester City, for example, Manchester United is probably the the kind of golden child of happening to establish a women's team and, you know, invested good money in it and won the championship in the first season, got up to the WCL. You know, you have a, a manager like Casey Stoney that managed to get them up into the top of the table. Um, obviously not quite literally the top three, but, you know, fourth fourth uh, finishes last season was it was still quite good but it's I think it's happening more and more often that a lot of clubs are getting the idea in their head that it is possible um 
obviously a lot of backroom stuff has to happen for for this to happen but you're seeing it a lot more and you're you're seeing a lot more motivation and respect i think respect is is a big word in in these clubs that they're actually investing and willing to to take a try at their women's team can be another manchester united for example and you're seeing it more and more often which is which is really lovely to see because i think the gap between and Jesse will probably have more to say on this. They've seen um, more games than I have, but the gap between the WSL and, and Championship has always been a lot bigger than what you'd want it to be, considering that it should be a direct competition between both sides. But it's the investment in women's football. It's always about the investment. <laughs> Unfortunately, it always goes back to that. But now you're just you're seeing it a lot better, and clubs are able to keep up with each other a lot better. Um, you know. A Manchester United or Leicester City and all these people they've motivated the the kind of and maybe it isn't just investment you know when you have these these clubs coming into your league that you've been in for years with money and they just get to win it um maybe it does give you a bit of more motivation to kind of keep up with them and you're seeing it with London City Lionesses for example um they've they've been keeping up quite well this season um you know they're not top of the league but they are kind of competing for for those top spots and it's nice to see that the level overall is, is coming up and then once you get that level up in the championship, then it's going to be in an amazing competition between the WSL and the championship. Jesse? Yeah, I think the the Liverpool thing is a bit of a strange one, right? Because I feel like we can all say that there's no way Liverpool should have ever have ended up in the championship. And the fact that the club kind of allowed that to happen, um, you know, within five years of having won the WSL is, is totally bizarre. So in some ways I'm like, oh, you know, Liverpool kind of closing the gap, is that actually what's going on? Because because they are a team so filled with a ridiculous amount of, of resources, as good as it is to see the club kind of trying to turn turn this around. Um, yeah, I do think the more the more interesting trend is, is that of the, like the London City Lionesses, Durham as well, these more independent clubs and whether we can see them maybe push on uh, in, into a top division and whether they could compete because, you know, I don't think anyone wants to... Well, maybe some people do, but I think it would be a shame if the WSL just became a facsimile of the Premier League in terms of the clubs that play in it. And that is what we've kind of continued to see over the years. And to me, that doesn't really indicate the health of the women's game in this country it would just indicate the financial prowess of the largest football teams in this country um again it's great for those players if those teams want to invest and they they see that as a good thing but um it becomes about a fiscal thing rather than actually about i don't know giving women's football its own kind of path to follow uh so i think that's a bit of a, a shame that 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 we do see continuing and i guess the one question is is really since united we haven't seen any of those championship teams come into the WSL and perform that well on a week in week out basis um we saw Leicester last year like run teams close in in these kind of cup cup competitions but they've obviously totally flopped in in the division this year and it's not entirely clear to me why why that is happening um and whether that will continue to happen because ostensibly lots of the teams at the bottom of the WSL are pretty crap you know and it doesn't surprise me that championship teams can beat them in cup competitions like the Continental Cup um, but it just seems like that kind of week in week out aspect is still a bit too much for for some of those teams to be able to immediately overcome. Yeah, I, that's the thing that I would mention the most personally is that I've over the last few years seen 
or hoped that women's football can sort of have a clean slate to an extent and and these teams like you say London City Lionesses like the pathway is there for them that's a pathway that in men's football is just broken down completely and the the teams at the top are just in a fixed state now because of the financial advantage they have over their rivals I hope as well I really hope that we don't just end up with the exact same teams at the top which brings me on nicely to you know some, uh, to Spain and unfortunately or fortunately depending on who you support Barcelona and Real Madrid <laughs> uh, in case people haven't seen well firstly let's let's talk about just very quickly about what happened on Wednesday night um, Alex I know you watched the, the Clasico the Supercopa semi-final between the two tides Barcelona took until the 91st minute a rarity for them to finally break the deadlock and obviously win as they invariably do Alex, I saw you say that Real Madrid are learning from these Clásicos and getting closer and closer in each game. Was this the toughest game Barcelona have played this season? Um, I would say Champions League games. Um, against Curve, for example, they they took forever to score. Um, even Hoffenheim was, I wouldn't say competitive, but it, it was still kind of these teams know what to do against Barcelona. I think a lot of teams know what to do against Barcelona. Um, it's just a matter of how good they do it and how good Barcelona is on the day. Um, you're, you're seeing these a lot in the league now of teams holding off Barcelona nil-nil for the entirety of the first half or teams scoring first even. Um, Barcelona then goes on to win about 5-1 after that. But essentially, it's it's getting it right. It's I think this has been the team that has been able to sustain it for the longest amount of time, but also at the same time create their own chances. I mean, you know, Madrid hit the post. Um, it's not like Madrid was just defending the entire time. They picked and chose their moments because of the equality of the attack that they have. Um, and I think for Real Madrid in particular, I think the fact that most of these players do team uh, do play on the national side together, I think gives Real Madrid just a slight advantage over, say, European sides against Barcelona. Um, but look, I mean, if we look at the game, if we're being honest, Barcelona had plenty of chances to close out the game in the first half. They just, I, I mean, Fidel Rodolfo had a first-time volley right at the front post and she just skied it for whatever reason that was. So it wasn't... Barcelona were extremely dominant and they did have a lot of chances to close off the game, but... Again, Real Madrid knew exactly what they had to do. I mean, the last Clásico before this, Barcelona won 3-1. Um, so, you know, before it was just a complete shutout. You know, now Real Madrid are still losing, but they're able to, you know, score a goal against Barcelona. Now they're able to, to hold off a 0-0 until the 91st minute. So they're slowly getting better and, and they're actually... And you don't see it often to, to see such a, an actual progress in teams that are playing against the same team over and over again and just losing over and over again. Um, and again, they, they, they're going to play three times in March um, with the Camp Nou game being the last one of the month. Um, so it's definitely going to be interesting to see how those three matches go. Yeah, and if you know Real Madrid, as you say, the national team players are there that, that know the Barcelona players so well, they also just play each other more than any other competitive rival that Barcelona have in the Champions League 
So maybe, maybe if there's one team that can knock them out of the Champions League, it could be Real Madrid, even if that would be possibly the most painful way to exit the competition for Barcelona fans. Indeed. You mentioned the, the Camp Nou game. Um, can you just talk us through that in front of, in case anybody has missed the news? Barcelona will be playing Real Madrid in the Champions League in front of 85,000 people. And Alex, I believe you'll be one of them. Indeed. Um, Jesse's coming along also, but they still haven't bought their plane tickets, so I don't know, I don't trust them. I'm going to be on um, that same plane from Gatwick <laughs> as you, Alex. <laughs> Yay. Um, yeah, so basically, a bit of history with Barcelona women and Camp Nou. Uh, Barcelona women played their first professional competitive match uh, last year in 2021, January, at the Camp Nou, obviously in the middle of COVID, so there was no crowd to be able to watch that. And prior to that, the last time that Barcelona women played at Camp Nou was about 50 years ago. And it was not a professional team, not a team affiliated with Barcelona. It was kind of Barcelona's unofficial women's team. Um, that's a whole other story. But basically, yeah, in the past, what, 50, 51, 50, yeah, 51 years now, Barcelona have only played at the Camp Nou twice. Um, so now this is kind of the moment of redemption um last from last season um being against being in front of no crowd which was a bit of a blow but yeah like it's Real Madrid Barcelona in the Champions League maybe perhaps the fact that the men have been doing so crap um might given might have given a bit more motivation um for people to come watch this match and yes you know there was quite a few every member for example was able to to get four free tickets um but outside of that you know, people start to buy their tickets. Yes, they were nine euros. Um, it's women's football. What do you want? Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, because they were free, because they were so cheap, that doesn't mean that people would actually get these tickets. Um, so the fact that 85 plus thousand people have gotten these tickets says so much. And the fact that it's a Real Madrid-Barcelona clash in the Champions League, that is kind of, I think, the main reason why so many Barcelona fans would want to come see this, come out of the way to see this. Um, when, you, when you look at the way Barcelona are as a club, it's more than just football. You know, Mesquion Club is quite literally what happens there. So I think that's an advantage for this occasion of women's football, to have a club and to have fans that care about the club more than men's football, just men's football, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, tickets have been sold out. The entirety of the stadium has been opened. And that was just in a matter of three days. So um, quite uh, it's it's looking, hopefully, it would be really nice if it broke the record for uh, the most the most attendance in a women's match, which is still held by the 1999 mm -hmm. uh, Women's World Cup final. Um, and I believe the record for a club um club competition I think is around 29k so I think that would be easily broken um, but yeah let's let's see what happens. Uh, Jesse where do you stand on this the sort of Alex said tickets given away tickets were cheap sure I mean the, the important thing is to get people through the gates and there and watching women's football and getting those people then to come back and watch women's football again and again and again where do you stand on sort of celebrating this or just looking at it as like this isn't a one-off event this has to just be a starting point yeah I think it's definitely worth you know celebrating I think it would be 
you know kind of churlish to to just totally ignore its impact but you know even the fact that the attendance record is from kind of 1999 shows us that these one-off events don't necessarily create that kind of trickle-down effect that we might hope they do um i think a lot of that can often be to do with the what then happens on the pitch in terms of like if you go to a really exciting high intensity close game you suddenly become a lot more likely i think to to go back to that because it's a better experience whereas you know being at the emirates when arsenal played barcelona with arsenal fans um I feel like it was kind of a bit of a turnoff for them because their team was rubbish and really thoroughly beaten. And as much as you can kind of try and enjoy Barcelona, Arsenal was so unable to lay a glove on them. It wasn't even that good to watch them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I think that does become a bit of a, a problem. I think it's just, you know, clubs need to kind of take it on a case-by-case basis. Um, I think it is really interesting that Chelsea seem to have basically said we've done this once or twice and we're never going to bother doing it again uh, because the players didn't really like it. But they are a team who, you know, have their own ground. Um, They get, you know, relatively good attendances for uh, the WSL. Like, for example, I suspect the Arsenal and City games will probably sell out. Um, And that creates like a really good atmosphere. And it is a lot better than when I've been to games, women's games at Stamford Bridge because the atmosphere there wasn't great because you just had loads of like kids and people who weren't really following the game so I think you know I can really see both sides of it but I think ultimately you know the kind of historical importance of clubs trying it and seeing what works like really matters I think it would be silly for clubs just to say we're never going to do this um, because it can obviously make a real difference and ultimately you know as kind of Alex touched on like Barcelona men's teams are really going through a moment so if you're a Barcelona fan why wouldn't you want to watch the women's team because they are just head and shoulders better than better than the men's jesse alex thank you so much for joining us i'm sure if you want to you'll join us again before the season's over for now though could you just let people know where they can find your work and find more of your brilliant opinions um yeah i'm at alex ibaceta 23 on twitter and you can find jesse and i giving each other shit every single week um on box to box wsl yeah i'm uh, i'm on twitter at uh jesse jph and yeah i'm i'm there with alex all the time moaning (laughs) so if you want more of that that's where to find it again a huge huge thanks to jesse and alex for joining me but don't go away we've got more we're going to head over to italy and talk about what is maybe the most shocking transfer that's happened so far this month in the women's game And I'm delighted now to welcome Jacopo Piotto to the podcast. He works as a football analyst at Sky Italia and is here to talk to us about, I think, Jacopo, it's fair to say, a pretty huge story in women's football in Italy this this January transfer window, no? I would say so. Thank you for having me. Yeah. No, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. So, uh, Valentina Giacinti left Milan for Fiorentina on loan. For anyone who doesn't know, Giacinti is one of the biggest stars in Italian women's football. She joined Milan a few years ago when they started their women's team and I think, by my count, has 55 Serie A goals for Milan in in 68 games. She signed a new contract only in the summer and now she's left on loan for 
Fiorentina. Jacopo, can you firstly just explain to us how big Giacinti is in Italian football in the women's game? So, of course, she is part of the Italian expedition that went to the World Cup, and she was not one of the starters, but one of, of those players that had the, the most ups in the tournament. Uh, she's been the the main striker from Milan for, for a few years. She's been the capo cannoniere in the tournament, uh, the top scorer. Um, she's still young enough to have many goals ahead in her career, but also experienced enough to be an international level star. And at AC Milan, she, she was the captain in, in the last season. Uh, so th- that makes it even bigger, you know, the transfer when the captain leaves in, in, in bad terms, basically. Um, yeah, that's her her status in the in the Italian Italian football, and I think if it wasn't for Girelli, she would probably be the, the main striker of the the national team as well. They play together now in a new system, and it's probably fair to say Milan, at least last season, were the biggest challenges to Juventus dominating the league, and Giacinti is is the star player of the team, right? Uh, they were the, the biggest challenge. They were hoping to be again. This season is not going as planned, probably. Uh, I wouldn't say Giacinti is the star player, um, mainly because I think that, especially if we look at the roster of the previous year, there are a couple of players with uh, a bigger international experience. But if you look at the, the core of the team that, that started when AC Milan started a few seasons ago, because we should remember... Uh, AC Milan is a, a young team in the in the competition, the women's game. Uh, when they started, of course, she was the the player that uh, became eventually the main scorer, the leader, and the captain. And she signed this new contract in the summer to 2024, and now just a few months later, she she leaves on loan for Fiorentina. What happened? to the relationship between Giacinti and Milan in the last few months in the first half of the season. Why has she decided and why have the club let her go out on loan now to another team in the league? So there has been no official statement from any of the parts involved, but the rumour said even months ago that there was kind of a quarrel or a fight between uh, Vero Bocchete and coach uh, Maurizio Ganz. Um, Giacinti has a very good relationship with Bocchete even outside of the pitch. You could see the two of them plus other AC Milan players in their Instagram accounts the, all, all the time. So the, the story is that she backed her teammate against the coach and at some point both wanted guns to be gone. And between the power that the, the captain can yield and the, the, the star player, which is Bocchete, could yield that could have been an outcome, actually, but the club decided to uh, keep guns in charge, which meant that the two of them actually either had to adapt to the situation or leave, and they both went to, to Fiorentina. So, so uh, sorry, yeah, I, I think that the, the the reason is they were they didn't agree with what the club uh, thought would be the, the future of this project, at least for. The, the the near future. So you have Veronica Bocchetta now with Fiorentina. You have Giacinti now with Fiorentina as well. How did Fiorentina, who they they don't you know they're not competing for the Champions League places. They're not competing at the top of the Serie A. 
how did Fiorentina pull this off? Why were Fiorentina the club that managed to benefit from this, this fallout? Um, I think many reasons. Uh, one of them is uh, we should remember that Fiorentina have been competing for the title in previous years. Uh, they were the club, the first of the top men's clubs that decided to uh, have a women's team and they won the league the, the, the season that, that followed. Then they came second, if I'm not mistaken, twice to Juventus after Juventus joined the, the competition as well. And they beat AC Milan two seasons ago for the Champions League spot. Uh, then I think it was clear that the, the Milan were destined to, to grow and outgrow Fiorentina. And so Fiorentina also lost some of, of their key players like Aliaguani, which is ironically now at AC Milan. Um, but, you know, I think that their status in, in women's football, even though they're not competing maybe this season, is uh, as being one of the teams that could compete. So Giacinti and Bocchete, I think they thought that next year they can challenge, if not Juventus, at least their previous club, AC Milan, if they stay there, of course, which is uh, not clear yet. Yeah, and that was that was my next question, I guess. What will happen at the end of the season? Is there any hope for, for Milan to reconcile these relationships? Or are these moves going to become permanent? Are other clubs going to become involved in impossible transfers? So regarding other clubs, um, one of the reasons that Giacinti and Bocchetti could have chosen Fiorentina is, well, of course, maybe they wanted to stay in Italy, uh, since one of them is Italian and Bocchetti could have liked the, the tournament and, and the country. Um, but also, in the case of Giacinti, I am not sure that she has the profile that would be interesting for uh, a bigger uh, foreign club. And I think she wants to be relevant, as she should. So she wants to try to win the league in Italy first, um, maybe to, to prove to other clubs outside that she could, could be worth it. Um, I think that while she was the captain and the leader of AC Milan, and despite the, the many goals she scored for the club and, and for the national team, uh, she could be already at the peak of what she can accomplish in her career. So I don't see a bigger club, I don't want to say Barcelona, but even a bit lower uh, going for her. So I think she will stay in Italy anyway. Um, going back, I'm not sure because it depends on whether AC Milan want to keep guns in charge or not. And that's a whole different matter, um, which I mean, I, I think that there could be a, matter, um, a change in the respect. I'm not sure that that would mean that she would be back because the club has also to decide whether they want somebody who was so against their own choices that in the end she wanted to leave or at least she accepted to leave. So what happens if Gans is out and a new manager comes in and she's back and then she doesn't like the new one? I don't think you want to keep a player, especially if that player is supposed to be one of the leaders and the captain, um, if she's not happy with the club and ready to uh, to show her unhappiness in this way. And It's not the, the first case that it ever happened in football, of course. No, no, definitely not. Um, and as for as for Milan now, how do they how do they replace two? crucial players how do they replace sort of the the two kind of standout players that are at least maybe not 
necessarily in terms of talent only, but also in terms of profile. This you mentioned at the top, at the top that this Milan team is really young. It's it's only three or four years now that that Milan had a women's team. In that short space of time, there's been a lot of investment in in terms of women's football and trying to chase down Juventus. And now this season looks like a huge step backwards for that project. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the main reason for this is um, Milan entered the, the arena with good intentions and and then willing to, to win as soon as possible. Of course, there were already other competitors that were better equipped to do that. And they they brought in some very good players. Sometimes they couldn't keep them. In, I'm thinking of Hasegawa, uh, previous season. She only stayed for a few months. She was great. And uh, I think the, the whole Serie A would have benefited from having players like her uh, playing the league. Um, so I think they they want to keep improving. But some of the choices they have done, and I'm not referring to letting Jacinti go, um, may have not been planned in the best way. So, for example, even in the previous years when Jacinti was the main striker and she also had uh, Dawi as her partner up front, I, I always thought that they were a little bit short in terms of personnel in, in attack. They only had two options, basically. They had some reserves, but they were not up to the task and they were never used, uh, basically. And, and this season started with uh, similar problems. It was only Giacinti. They brought in other players, but they couldn't find uh, playing time. They couldn't get playing time. And now she's been replaced by Piemonte, which is a very different type of, of striker. I think she's actually more useful tactically for the team. But then you need to find somebody who can score goals. And they've tried with... Um, Alia Guagni playing up front in the, the front trio. I'm not sure if that's a solution because Alia Guagni is a great player. I'm not sure she can make up for the goals you're going to miss from Jacinti. So the best solution for me would have been to have a player like Piemonte or Piemonte herself together with Jacinti. But that had created some problems in the past because the, the number nine wanted to be the number nine. Jacopo, one last thing. Is there any chance that you think anybody can catch Juventus and, and make a challenge for the title? Or is it another year where they're going to end at the top of the table? I don't know because... Uh, well, I, I think no, actually. But it, it's difficult because how do you catch a team that has won every game in the previous season? Like, literally every game. Uh, to catch them, you have to do the same in every single game, never lose, drop point. And then, on top of that, you have to beat them when you play against them, at least once. And so far, every every other team has failed because they were ahead when they started and they kept building on it. And, and they're having a, a surprisingly good Champions League campaign as well. And the fact that they were able to go through in a very difficult group uh, makes me think that Juventus are already where... AC Milan and maybe Fiorentina were hoping to be last year or even this season. Juventus are there and the other clubs are, are not there yet. Um, and you cannot even hope that they drop points because they are too focused on the Champions League because there are not enough games, as in the men's game, uh, to, to make that happen, in my opinion. So uh, my money is on them for this season and 
and even the next one unless uh, big things happen in the summer. Jacopo, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank you for having me. You mentioned that the Juventus uh, are obviously still going strong in the Champions League, and we'll definitely have you back at some point to talk about that when the competition restarts in March. That would be my pleasure.